0: For the longest time, uh, I had a pretty serious uh, aversion to Indian food. I really did not care for it. Now, me not liking Indian food, you know, when I was a kid, it was just, it was like, ah, it's just gross, right? But as I got older, it started to bother me a little bit, right? Because billions of people all around the world love Indian food. So clearly, it was possible for me to love Indian food. Clearly, it was a likable thing. In fact, for a cool billion people on the planet, they don't even call Indian food, Indian food. If you live in India, they don't call it Indian food. For them, it's just food. And nobody says, I don't like food, right? So clearly, this was something that could be liked, which meant that the fact that I didn't like it meant there was something wrong with me. And that bugged me. And so I made a decision. I was going to force myself to like Indian food. And the way I was going to do it was I was going to eat it and eat it and eat it until I figured out how to like it. And so I sat down with a plate of chicken tikka masala and I ate it and I took a bite um, um, and yeah, it was oh, oh, oh. And it was painful and horrible. And then the next day, I got a biryani and I sat down and I was like, "Okay, I'm." Um, and it was like that for ages, where I would eat it and I would loathe it. And it was a sacrifice because I was choosing to eat this food that I detested instead of eating food that I actually uh, liked. But as time went on the attitude changed. Um, nom nom. Yeah. Um, nom nom. Yeah. Um, nom nom. Yeah. Um, nom nom. Yeah. And eventually, one day, I remember the day very clearly, it was my wife's 30th birthday, and we went to an Indian restaurant, and I sat down, and I had a vegetable biryani, and I enjoyed every single bite of it, and ever since then, I've loved Indian food, and it's been something that uh, is a constant part of our, uh, our lives. Eventually, it took some work. It took some amputation of certain aspects of myself, but eventually, I was able to develop a taste for Indian food. And this was good, right? It opened up new cultural horizons to me. It opened up a whole new world of cuisine and interesting things. But actually, what's really funny is it kind of turned out to be important for my life in general because my brother ended up marrying a woman from India. And so this is me at the wedding and it would have been really strange if I was the only guy there in a kurta then saying, hey, do you have any cheeseburgers? I can't eat this stuff right? Me learning how to uh, enjoy eating Indian food actually made it so that I could have a better relationship with the people who ended up becoming my family. There are many, many things for us in this world that are good for us, that are desirable, that are not a part of our nature, There are things that we have to work for. There are things that we have to strive for. There are things that we have to train for. The pursuit of these things is, in many respects, driven by zeal. And today what we're going to be considering is that act of zeal, where it comes from, what drives us, and how it appears for us in uh, scripture. Now, a little bit of background here, we're looking at Romans chapter 12. The book of Romans, as I'm sure you already know, was written uh, to the church at Rome as sort of like a primer in what it is to be a Christian. There's lots of basic Christian doctrine in it. They talk about what Christians believe. And chapter 12 begins what I would say is the ending of the book. The next three chapters of Romans, Paul is just talking about what it is like to live as a Christian? What is it that a Christian is striving to look like? What is it a Christian is striving to do? This is where he starts off, actually, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, and it kind of sets the stage for our verses today. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I wanna take a second to just do something I tell my seminary students to never ever do, and we're gonna do it anyway, okay? Uh, this act of worship thing, there's kind of always been this hangup in our uh, circles about what we call church services. Uh, the colloquial term for a church service is a worship service, but we've always kind of steered away from calling church a worship service. Our preference has always been for divine service. And the reason is actually mostly due to these verses. Because in a church service, God is doing stuff for us. He's giving us his body and his blood in the sacrament. He's giving us the water of baptism. He's giving us his word. He's giving us forgiveness of our sins. All of the work that's happening in a church service, is stuff that God is doing for us. Worship is when I'm doing something for God, and the truest and most proper acts of worship are when I offer my body as a living sacrifice. This does not sound good for us, because sacrifices, of course, involve, well, mutilation, right? They involve the cutting off Of things or the cutting in to things. So how is it that we sacrifice of ourselves for God? What is it that we cut off as an act of worship? Here are our verses uh, for today. It's Romans chapter 12. We start reading at verse 9 and we'll go through to verse uh, 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. I would argue that in the next three chapters, uh, out of all of them, these are the most impassioned verses. He uses some very, very colorful language when uh, describing what a Christian should zealously strive for and to be. Immediately, when we look at these verses, we're confronted with some very serious problems. Not only are none of these things natural to us; they aren't part of our uh, nature. But the mere act that he has to tell us to do them, that he has to say something about them, means that we can't right? this very first line. Love must be sincere. If we, uh, uh, the word that's being used for sincere there is the same word that gets used for uh, uh, hypocritical. Not a hypocrite. Well. If someone tells you that you're supposed to love somebody else, and you don't, but you pretend to because that's what you're supposed to do, that's what you've been instructed to do, doesn't that immediately make it hypocritical? Being told to love somebody that you didn't love, if somebody says to you, love this person, you can't just be like, oh, okay, all of a sudden that's turned on. At best you're covering it up, right? At best you have. One feeling on the inside, but you're attempting to put on a brand new face and project love despite what's being called for inside of your heart. The mere act of having to tell somebody to love someone else and to love them honestly and fervently seems to destroy the command that's being given. How can I have a non-hypocritical love for somebody if you had to tell me to love them in the first place? Come on, it goes the same way later on. It says, never be lacking in zeal, right? Never be lacking in your passion uh, for doing something. Well, if you have to tell somebody to feel passionate about something, then clearly any passion they're able to work up is going to be very put on. I I see this from my students all the time, right? They should be zealous. And I try to encourage them to be zealous, and they can even put on the fake accidents of being zealous. In fact, in my Fundamentals of Speech class, I actually tell them how to trick their professors into believing that they're being zealous. I say, here's how you fake a smile. Here's how you fake a laugh. Here's how you fake that you're paying attention in class, right? And I'm doing this because I'm trying to encourage them to be good listeners, but of course, at the end of the day, are they really being zealous if all they're doing is following the mechanics of the instructions? No, they're really not. The act of telling somebody that they have to be zealous illustrates how far short we come of actually having this thing, and almost makes it seem like it's impossible to have, because telling us means it wasn't a qu- it's not honest. This one's another interesting one down here. Be faithful in prayer. The literal translation of uh, faithful there, it's not like a consistency. It's, it means effortful. When you pray, <clears throat> lean into it. Put your back into it a little bit. When I think about this, I think about Jesus setting the model of prayer for us when he's in the garden. He had a prayer request. It's so odd to think about Jesus asking God to do something And it was something he desired deeply. He wanted the cup of suffering to pass from him, but he was still willing to bend to the Lord's will. As he prayed, it says that he prayed and sweat like blood came down from his brow. Pray effortfully. Pray passionately. That's something I fall very short on too. If somebody has to tell me, that my effort that i should be putting effort into my prayers and clearly i haven't been doing that anyway and the act of telling me means i'm probably only going to be doing it out of obligation and then how much effort is it really so far do i fall down, uh, fall away from this in fact that sometimes i'll say i'll pray for you to somebody knowing full well that i'm going to forget and that it's not going to happen and that's how little effort i'll often put into prayers. The mere act of telling us that we have to do this seems to make it so that's impossible. And then finally, this last one, practice hospitality here. The uh, literal translation uh, for hospitality here is that you should love uh, strangers, philizinia. Uh We actually, we, we use both parts of that word in English in some ways, right? Uh, the philo part, philo for love, right? If you're a Francophile, then you love things that are French. If you're a cinephile, you love movies, yeah. Uh, so the phile part, that's the love part. And then there's the xeno part, right? And we use that one, but we typically use it not with philo, but with phobia, xenophobia, fear of other people, fear of Uh, others, of outsiders. This is the opposite of that. Instead of ending with fear, we are told to begin with love. And that's how we should look at other people. If we are being told that we need to do this, you need to treat these other people with love, how sincerely, how non-hypocritically can we possibly do it? We're being given instructions here, and it almost feels like the mere act of being instructed means that these instructions are impossible to follow. But we have to remember, when we look at these verses, where their origin point is, where they start from. Remember that verse that set us up, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he said, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This isn't an effort that we're taking on ourselves as an obligation to try to square us. This isn't an effort that we're taking on ourselves even particularly as an obligation at all. These are all things that are being done in view of God's mercy. When we look at Christ, we see an exemplification of everything that we should have been. When we look at Christ on the cross, we see an illustration of everything that should have happened to us for what we are. We look at the cross, and we see the punishment for our nature. We look at the empty tomb, and we see the reward for his nature. There's an interesting turn of phrase that takes place in our uh, verses here when it says, cling to what is good. I made a mistake. I'm, I'm willing to admit it. I made a mistake when it came to this week's bulletin because Holly Freund who is an excellent and, I might say, highly patient person with me, uh, asked me for a bulletin cover, uh, and I tried to get it to her nice and early in the week. And I knew that the zeal part was going to be important, and I'd been looking at that very particularly. And so I was like, oh, it's talking about clinging to what is good. And so I, I picked this picture where you've got this little hand clinging uh, to another hand. And I thought, that, that seems reasonably close uh, to clinging. When I actually took a really good hard look at the word though, I discovered something I didn't know about Greece. They had glue. And the word that's being used here is actually be glued to goodness. What an interesting picture that is for our relationship with Jesus. That it's not something that we're holding on to. It's not something that we're reaching out for. It's something that has been stuck onto us like a label. It is something that has been laid onto us that rips a little bit if you try to pull it away. It has become something that covers me. It's become something that's a part of me. Be stuck on goodness. Have goodness cling to you in that way. When we walk with Christ, when we look at him, he's more than just an example. He is our goodness. He made a sacrifice. He carved off of himself all of his goodness and glued it to you. He carved off all of your evil and all of your punishment and everything that you deserve. And he glued it onto himself. We are stuck on him. And as a part of this, we then respond to this mercy with these behaviors. And that's where things become a little bit interesting. Because all of these things, it seems like, are not the sort of thing that would be uh, possible for us to do right from the off, right? Like the mere instruction, as we said before, seems to make it so that you couldn't possibly obey it. But when we do these things, it's not unlike learning to love Indian food. It's not unlike learning to love something that you didn't love uh, previously. The command is something that we then attempt to put into practice albeit extremely weakly. We consciously make a sacrifice of ourselves. Remember that sacrifice we said involves that carving. We deliberately carve something off of ourselves. It's not in our nature to love others. It's not in our nature To show mercy. It's not in our nature to be quick to show hospitality. And we take those aspects of ourselves and in love for Christ and in view of his mercy, we remove them. And when they grow back, we try to remove them again. Not because we're hoping to gain salvation, but because of Christ's mercy, his model. Doing that is like learning to love Indian food. You try it, and your reaction to loving somebody who's unlovable is probably initially going to be and then you try it again, and your reaction is and as time goes on, and as you continue to pursue mercy in this way, you gradually adapt a taste for it. You gradually find that these bits of yourself get shaved away, and... It provides similar benefits, just like uh, learning to love Indian food opened up a new world of cuisine, opened up a new cultural world for, for me. When we pursue righteousness in view of Christ's mercy, it changes our lives. There's no way that you can sin to your own benefit. Your nature makes war against your life. Your sins make your life worse. By actively carving those things away, your life improves. The lives of other people around you improve. But beyond that, beyond just any sort of temporal benefits uh, and rewards that get brought up here, there's the family that's been won for him. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we have an immense family that we're part of and as we make these sacrifices as we carve these bits of ourselves to model more perfectly our lord we find a deeper and more meaningful connection with the people with whom we will spend eternity people who also are the recipients of Christ's uh, mercy, people who also with us struggle to model Christ's mercy to the world. Amen.